This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante, sitting in for Nalini Nadkarni. The Zika virus, the Ebola virus, HIV, and likely COVID-19 all share a similar origin story. The best available evidence suggests that all of these viruses originated in non-human animals. This is how we've come to expect viruses to work. And in fact, it's the starting place for a lot of the fictional books and movies about rapidly spreading diseases that were popular when global pandemics were just fiction for most of us. But if viruses can at times move from other animals to humans, it stands to reason that these sub-microscopic infectious agents can also go the other way. And they do. There are many documented cases in which the virus that causes COVID has been transmitted from humans to house cats, dogs, hamsters, lions, tigers, pumas, mink, gorillas, and other animals. Scientists sometimes call this zooanthroponosis or reverse zoonosis or just spillback. That's the word that we're going to use today. And this year, an international team of researchers synthesized years of research into this phenomenon in a study that has sparked a lot of discussion about the risks inherent in spillback to humans and animals alike. Joining us today is the lead author of that study, Anna Fagri. She's a virologist and a wildlife veterinarian at Colorado State University. And over the years, her research has focused on the transmission of viruses in many different animals, from bats to mice to polar bears and more. Anna Fagri, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Matthew. I'm really excited to be here today. Anna, to understand spillback, we we probably need to start with spillover. I grew up in the 1990s. My first introduction to zoonosis came from what I suspect was not the particularly accurate representation of how this happens in the movie Outbreak. How... How does spillover actually and generally occur? That is a kind of a, a, a big question that a lot of groups are focusing on. And it's something that is definitely at the forefront of our minds. And I think there are still so many questions to be asked about this. And so there are certainly some drivers that have been implicated in this process, climate change, other anthropogenic or human-caused disturbances, um, urbanization, deforestation, globalization. I mean, a lot of just human behavior in general is is putting um, wildlife at risk. And then when wildlife are at risk and their health and their populations are threatened, we tend to see we tend to see these processes occur. But yeah, there are so many questions to be asked and answered in that realm. What what happens to a virus or what happens to prepare a virus to make a jump from one host species to another, whether it's going from animals to humans or animals to animals? What, what's shifting in that virus that allows that to happen? Well, oftentimes... There are certain viruses that are just kind of set up to to be better at this. And so thinking about cross-species transmission, what will happen is through whatever mechanism, whether it's a respiratory, aerosol, fecal-oral transmission, there will be that contact in which the virus will move from one species to another and one of those can be humans. You know, it could be from a bat to a pig. It could be from a human to a cat. 
but the, the virus will actually move. So there needs to be that opportunity, that contact. And then generally speaking, we will see an adaptation within the virus so that the virus can, it, I'm trying not to anthropomorphize it. That's something that we're guilty of doing a lot, but um, you don't picture your viruses with like faces and hands and I like mean, really evil expressions and those like handlebar mustaches that the evil people have in silent oh, movies. I mean, if I was honest about like the kind of personalities and the like, you know, facial features that I gave to my viruses, I'd probably, Yeah. Yes, no. Some of them have handlebar mustaches. Absolutely. But there's, um, yes. So a lot of these viruses, particularly um, RNA viruses like coronaviruses and um, filoviruses like Ebola, they tend to change more rapidly and mutate more rapidly. And so when we see these events happen, these cross species transmission events happen, there's generally an adaptation period. And so the virus is, is able to, it kind of grabs hold in this new host. That's a, that's an important point because I think that we tend to think that this is a very easy thing to happen, but viruses are in every living organism in the world that we know about. And this doesn't, I mean, this happens at a regular frequency, but, you know, if it happened as often as viruses happen, it would be, well, it would be, all viruses would be everywhere. And that's, of course, not the case. There are viruses that are specific to different host organisms, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really important point. So every living organism has some number of viruses that are probably impossible to quantify. Um, and not all of them are going to affect the animals or the organism's health or well-being. Some of them are just there. And so it's... it's They're just hanging out. Yeah. Now, there's been quite a bit of prior research that suggests that spillover may be increasing. So even though it's like this like, sort of like low baseline level you know, humans are expanding as a species, we're interacting with more and more animals. And and you mentioned climate change too. What's the what's the connection there? Yeah. So this group that I'm working with, Verena, um, they actually a couple of the scientists on that team just published this excellent paper. And it's it looks at um what we are, what we can expect to see in the future with regards to spillover and viral transmission due to climate change. It's a wake up call, I think, you know. And, and so in the general conclusion of that paper is that we can expect to see this happening more and more often. Yeah, yeah, it is. Which brings us to spill back. There's been quite a bit of research on spillback where a virus goes from from humans back to animals. But but mostly it's been case studies. What you and your team decided to do was to bring all of this literature together and evaluate what we really know about spillback in general. And this is for me, this was a little bit disconcerting because what you found is that there are a lot of blank spots in our understanding of spillback. Yes. Yeah. It's, um, it was, <laughs> that's a good word for it. Uh, disconcerting. And, you know, I think 
with studies like this where you end up reviewing the literature and you find these knowledge gaps, I think it's it's important to to point out that this isn't some sort of, you know, scientific negligence or it's just I think it really highlights how hard this is to study and how difficult it is to get an understanding of wildlife populations. And that's, I think, why there's this sampling bias. And we see so many of these are case studies and maybe they are in habituated non-human primate populations or zoos. Now, so what you're telling me is that this is not a global conspiracy to like keep information about spillback away from the yes, public. Yes, that's a much not, better way to put it. Yeah, it's you're not hanging out with your cabal of scientists, like rubbing your fingers together, all excitedly plotting the end of civilization. Hanging out with our viruses with their handlebar mustaches. <laughs> <you know. laughs> well, let's talk about some of these areas that are ripe for study. One of the primary concerns about spillback is a conservation concern. Viruses carried by humans that are eventually transmitted back to other animals could potentially decimate populations of creatures that, well, that might already be in danger thanks to other human actions. And your team did find that in about two thirds of the documented events, the spillback did result in sickness or death of the animal. So this can be a dangerous phenomenon for the animals that receive these viruses back from us. Yeah, so there, and I think also something to point out there is that in those instances where we did see that animals in the wild did have a virus or bacteria or fungus that is likely of human origin, um, we think there's probably some sampling bias here because it's kind of like the idea if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears the tree fall, did the tree, I forget exactly how it goes. You can probably, right. you know, and right, so, but what you're saying is like, if the, if the animal has a virus, but it doesn't cause sickness or death to the animal, how would we know it? Right. And then also thinking about when an animal dies of a virus, um, there's going to be scavenging. The animal can decompose. And so how much of this is happening and we're just not catching it because we don't actually get to that animals get to those samples in time to test them and so um i think it's there are there's sampling bias happening at a number of different levels and it really reflects how difficult it is to study these populations in a way that is non-invasive and also i mean it requires a lot of funding and time to understand kind of, I guess, longitudinally or over time what's happening. So it's it's hard to say, okay, well, that's abnormal because how do we know what abnormal looks like if we don't know what normal looks like? It also requires finding people who are like, hey, you know what sounds like a really great idea is spending time in the field looking for animals that have viruses. That sounds like a really fun way to spend a day. Yeah, or like you're, and I'm sure those people exist, but <laughs> or your entire twenties, you know, I mean, your your thirties, your entire life, yeah. <laughs> Let's go find some animal poop in the field. I mean, that's sounds like a great time to me. There's at least one piece of pretty compelling evidence that spillback 
might not happen that often. I mean, we've already said like as a baseline, it doesn't happen that often, but, but there's millions of zoo animals that are kept under extreme scrutiny by veterinarians. Your team only found 37 documented cases in which these animals were infected. And zoo animals, it should be said, are, are in a lot closer contact to humans than most wild animals. So does, did that piece, did that finding make you feel a little reassured that maybe this isn't, you know, a tidal wave of spillback that's coming for us all? Yeah, I think we talked about that a lot as we were discussing how to, um, yeah, kind of how to frame these results. And on one hand, it's it's reassuring that there isn't um, there, you know, there's not this huge body of literature that says spillback happens all the time in zoos. Um, and we are constantly exchanging our pathogens with these animals that we keep in captivity. But on the other hand, um, if you're not looking for it, you're not going to find it. So how much, and this goes not just for zoos, but this goes for, um, my dogs and cats that I sleep with at night. How much, you know, exchange is happening and it is of minimal consequence to the animals or the organism's well-being. And so we are not picking it up. We are not looking for it. So um, we saw, you know, relatively few cases in zoos for how many animals are kept in zoos worldwide. Um, but for the most part, those were instances where the animals, um, you know, there was a reason to sample those animals. There was a question mark about what was going on and they wanted to see if there was a pathogen. Some of them were just, you know, surveillance and kind of opportunistic, but I think there's, it's always sampling bias. <laughs> right. But there's no program that you know of where we're doing like regular viral censuses of zookeepers and regular viral censuses of the animals that they keep so that we can do sort of a, a running correlation between the two and see the transmission. If, in, in the absence of going like, oh my gosh, that monkey is sick. Correct. I am not aware of any. The other question that you and your team evaluated, and for whatever reason, this, it, it feels scarier to me, is what happens when secondary spillover occurs. And, and that would be when an animal gives a virus to us humans and we carry it around for a bit before giving it back either to the original host species or a new host species. And then at some point it comes back to us again. There have been cases like this. And again, sampling bias being what it is, we don't know. It could happen a lot and it's just not perniciously harmful in a way that we can see or that has captured our attention. But it, it's really rare in the literature. I think, in fact, you found one case. Um, it is, yes. And so that is, I guess, the, the secondary spillover would be where you're thinking about, okay, this 
pathogen has moved from humans into wildlife and it has um, been able to maintain circulation in wildlife. And so it's kind of set up shop, so to speak. And then um, and then you see it <clears throat> move back into human populations. It's yeah, it's extremely uncommon in what we have seen, what we have detected. And I think part of that is just thinking about how many barriers th that a pathogen has to go through in order to successfully adapt to another species. So thinking about kind of the Swiss cheese model, you know, there are all these holes that have to line up perfectly for the virus to to do the uh to do the spillover or to do the spillback and so yeah i love I, this i love this swiss the swiss cheese analogy is great but let me see if we can clarify what you're talking about here let's say we have a bunch of slices of swiss cheese yes and we line them all up the more slices of swiss cheese there are even though swiss cheese is famously holy um with holes not you know, religious, uh, even though Swiss cheese is famously holy, the more slices of Swiss cheese we have lined up, the harder it is to find a pathway that would take us all the way through every slice from one side to the other. And that's similar to the barriers that viruses face when they're trying to move from one host to another. Yes. Thank you for explaining that. That was wonderful. I cannot take credit for that analogy, but yes, that is the Swiss cheese analogy it's such a great analogy though right like whoever we we should actually we'll do this in the show notes hopefully like we we need to figure out who came up with that because it's great um but but it's also a little bit reassuring again you know that this is not something that that is easy let's talk about those barriers what are the barriers that prevent a virus from moving from one host to another so thinking about it from host to host, um, within the within the initial host, the virus has to uh, replicate or amplify to a high enough level that it is going to um, it has to infect the host properly, and then there has to be some sort of shedding, um, or in the case of uh, a virus or pathogen that is transmitted by a mosquito or tick, um, the the organism has to you know have enough pathogen in their blood. So there needs to be this kind of uh, this opportunity for the virus to escape the host. And so thinking about a respiratory virus, the virus needs to be at a high level in um, spit or sputum or, um, you know, aerosols. And then there needs to be uh, very importantly, which I think is the thing that's the most difficult for us to predict and think about. And it's that opportunity. It's that contact between two hosts. And so um, it need, the, the virus needs to be shed by the infected host. And then there needs to be this contact that occurs. And then the contact needs to be sufficient to ensure that the virus gets to the new host, which must be susceptible to the virus. So there are all of these molecular factors kind of thinking about the lock and key mechanism of the, the virus and the, the receptor on the host's cell. Um, there are a lot of, of barriers to entry. So when this does happen successfully, I mean, 
let's just take away the sort of like our feeling, you know, our, our general idea about viruses that they're always pernicious and evil and scary. Cause that's, first of all, that's not true, but just, if we just take that away, it's kind of awesome when it happens, right? Like this cosmic coincidence of things that actually allows a virus to transfer from one host to another because it's, so hard to do when it does happen we should really just like give that virus a pat on the back right it's um winning the game of evolution i think <laughs> awesome maybe isn't the right word but i mean it does make one feel in awe so maybe awesome is the correct word it's mind-boggling <laughs> it's tough in a world in which we're we've all been experiencing a pandemic and we, yeah. we kind of think about viruses in these terms to like take a step back and go like wow that virus is really cool but yeah yeah viruses are cool i mean they're in the evolutionary arms race they're not doing too bad i want to pivot just a bit to talk about your career in this area you mentioned earlier why you went into this work you began this line of work pre our current pandemic and i'm wondering what what does the experience of living through a global epidemic feel like to someone whose research is focused on infectious disease epidemiology i because I imagine it feels like you can't ever turn it off. This is something that I talk about um, a lot with my friends that are also in science and also work in public health. Um, it's a reason why I'm just so grateful for my community and for groups like, you know, Verena and just some of the veterinarians that I've grown up with, I guess, so to speak, is being able to talk about the burnout that a lot of scientists and public health folks are facing. I mean, there's the burnout of being a human living in the pandemic. And then there's the burnout of being a human living in the pandemic that also is trying to spend their, their work time and their, their work energy. It's understanding this, understanding this phenomenon um, and, and the long-term impacts that it, that it might be having. And, um, so I think the burnout is really real and the burnout is something that's important to um, to acknowledge. At the same time, I think if if we didn't know it was so important and if it wasn't rewarding and if it wasn't something that, you know, we believed in so much, like we we wouldn't be doing it. You know, I, I think a lot of us have days where we're like, what are we doing? But discussing mental health for the folks that are Frontline workers, physicians, nurses, it's a lot. It is. I I think maybe this relates to another part of your life, I, I'm guessing here, because you're not just a scientist. You're also a synthesist. <laughs> I, I understand you're a pretty popular DJ around the Fort Collins area, and pre-pandemic, you performed at a music festival in France. When yeah. you're, yeah, that's so cool. When when you're making music, is your mind free from thinking about the really big consequential questions you're asking in your research, or? I don't know, maybe it goes the other way around. Does music help you think about the work you do? I think a bit of both. I It definitely has been 
a really important way for me to kind of detach. And yeah, I know everybody has different outlets, um, but something that lets you just completely almost dissociate, you know, it's almost kind of like a spiritual experience where you you aren't, you're, you know, you're out riding your bike, you're going for a run, you're doing any number of things. And for me, that's, that's playing synthesizers or playing music. And it's the thing that, yeah, lets me detach a little bit in a really healthy way. And just sometimes there, there is kind of that interface where sometimes I will, um, I think about, I think about science while I'm writing and I've written songs about science. (laughs) It's very nerdy. Um, (laughs) but there's, there's also a lot of science in music. There's a lot of science in physics and in synthesis and using these analog instruments. And so, yeah, there's, you know, it's all connected in a way. That's Anna Fagri. She's the lead author of a recent study on how human to wildlife virus transmission works and what we know about it, and importantly, what we don't. And she is an affiliate at the Colorado State University Center for Vector-Borne Infectious Diseases. Anna Fagri, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Matthew. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. We're supported by the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, and if you give to Utah Public Radio, we're supported by you, too. Our producer is Claire Scott, and our theme music, which is usually playing right now, is Little Idea by Benjamin Tussaud. But instead, today, we're going out with Manticore, the first track from Anna's 2019 album of demos. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Thank you.